0: Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host, your storyteller. One of the first people in the early age of mass media to purposefully nurture his status as a celebrity was Mark Twain. He had, of course, been a journalist for much of his early life and even helped to build the print empires that gave him his fame. At the age of 65 or so, he was indeed one of the best known people in the world. He had just returned a few years earlier from a triumphant world tour, where he went as far as India, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand, doing what we would call today stand-up comedy. He was not only among the best-known people in the world, he was among the most traveled, too. You have to remember, this was an age before airplanes, so very few people were widely traveled. That was only the rich and privileged who got to do that. So in addition to telling humorous stories and reading from his books, he actually did some educating along the way, telling audiences about other cultures and geographic wonders of the world, like the volcanoes of Hawaii, where you could stand, as he said, in the snows of winter and gaze down upon a land where summer hath no end. He was distinguished by his white suits in his later life and the shock of white hair and enormous mustache. He said that he would have preferred a suit that would bankrupt the rainbow, but he had to settle for white. When he spoke to audiences in the evening that were formally dressed, he said he would look out at the audience and see the women in beautiful, brightly colored dresses looking like flowers among the men in black suits. The men, he said, look like the flower bed. Twain said clothes make the man. Naked people don't have much influence in polite society. He was troubled, though, by people who became famous for doing nothing. He marveled at those who were on the lecture circuit who were, as he said, well-known for their well-knownness. But what have they done, he'd ask. He'd be mystified today by the number of celebrities we have that are famous for just being famous. Twain's most important gift, though, was the quotable quote. He was almost daily in newspapers because of a witty saying or a funny anecdote. Twain was a genius at the art of publicity. And he didn't have to work hard at it because quotes spilled out of him as easy as water over Niagara. To this day, Twain is still one of the most quoted and misquoted people on the Internet, well more than a century after his death. He remains a humorous force because he was not only funny, he was wise. The older I get, the more this quote hits home. He said, to get the true measure of joy, you must have someone to divide it with. This he realized so poignantly after his dear wife, Livy died to get the true measure of joy, you must have someone to divide it with. Twain was much loved by the public at large for his humanness. One man in New England said, In America we love our family and our friends all we can, and if we have any love left over, we love Mark Twain. The press loved to cover him, too, to ask questions, to try to get stories out of him because they knew that anything from him would almost certainly be a front page story or a set aside frame with some sort of illustration of him, a cartoonish illustration of him with his shock of white hair and his big mustache. One famous anecdote that was published about Twain was this one. He said, I wrote a letter recently to Mr. Andrew Carnegie. I said, uh, my dear Mr. Carnegie, I see in the papers that you are a very wealthy man. I would like to get a Bible. It costs $10. I will bless you, God will bless you, and it will do a great deal of good. P.S. Don't send the Bible, send the $10. I want to select it myself. Well, this kind of outrageous playfulness was the sort of content newspapers loved. Carnegie and Twain were great friends, which made it all the more delightful. The wit and wisdom of Twain could be seen in the papers daily. He offered life insights like a classic book is a book that everybody talks about, but nobody reads. Travel. Is fatal to prejudice. Be good and you will be lonely. And his most famous quip of all, I suppose, was from the time, from this time, was when false rumors of his death circulated and journalists found out he was alive. They asked him for a comment about this false report, and he said, The rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. That traveled around the world and can be seen as a contextual quote in almost any newspaper any day in these modern times. He understood intimately how news cycles worked and how quotable quotes were like gold to journalists. He also understood the negative aspects of publicity. As he said, A lie, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth can get its shoes on truer today, I think, than then. Twain talked a lot about lying, what he called the art of lying. He claimed once that the US Congress had invited him to come to Washington and talk about his then famous essay, The Decay of the Art of Lying. He said, they invited me to come to Washington and talk about the art of lying, but I declined as I didn't know what I could teach those people about lying. I'd be an amateur in the presence of professionals. It would be like me trying to teach the mothers of Israel about nursery matters. He said, It was the great Thomas Carlyle who said a lie cannot live. I think it just goes to show that old Thomas didn't know how to tell him. The truth is a delicate thing. It is easily killed. But a lie, well told, is immortal. You see, wit and wisdom. That's how he has stood the test of time, just as true today as the day he uttered it. Despite the fact that he had had a long career as a journalist himself, he was sometimes quite angry with journalists. As he gave many public lectures, which people attended because he was funny— Twain hated that journalists would attend and transcribe every word and publish those transcripts, which would be picked up in newspapers in the towns he was headed to. And this would serve as a spoiler for the audiences yet to come. Now, I want to go backwards just a little bit to talk about Twain's most famous book, which set up his later fame. He published it when he was 50 years old, but he said he had worked on it for 10 years. He even laid it aside for a few years and returned to it. So that should give some hope to some of you younger would-be writers. He didn't publish Huckleberry Finn, his master work, until he was 50 and he worked 10 years on it. So if you're 25, 30, 35, that should give you hope because you have a lot of time before you have to get that master work done. Interestingly, the copyright laws were horrible then. Copyrights often didn't protect you except in your own country. If you published in the United States, then Canada and England could grab it at will and publish it and give you no royalties. To avoid this, Twain first published Huck Finn in England to give him British copyright protection and then a month later published it in America. Imagine that what some say is the top American novel of all time, was first published in England. Twain worked hard to get international copyright laws on the books and largely succeeded in that effort. By the time he died, he at least saw some protection for his works. He was influential in getting a law passed that protected literary works from what he called literary piracy for 28 years. He argued for the author's life plus 42 years. That's what he thought would be fair. Author's life plus 42 years of protection. In a public hearing on the matter, he told the court that he had two surviving daughters and they needed the income. He said, I have raised them right and they don't know how to do anything. So they need support. You see, 42 years ought to do it. The grandkids, they can fend for themselves. Well, the the court laughed a lot that day. It was the most banned book of that time, Huck Finn was, and is still often banned today. Today it gets banned from schools for the N-word. Then it was banned because authorities objected to Huck Finn's disrespect for authority. He was a juvenile delinquent. They didn't want to see that sort of behavior encouraged in other children. It is interesting, as an aside, that if you will look at a list of America's top books of all time, And a look at most banned books, they're the same list. Twain loved that his book was banned. He even offered to help with the banning of it. He wrote a letter to a woman in Boston who headed up a ban of the, who headed up a ban the Huck Finn movement and offered his help. He said, every one of those books we can keep out of a public library will sell seven of its mates. He knew that banning was good for business. It was excellent publicity. He pointed out that it wasn't the apple in the garden that was so attractive to Eve. It was the forbiddenness that was attractive. I think of Dr. Seuss today, the alleged banning. What some people see as the banning of his books has driven them to the top of the sales on Amazon. Dr. Seuss's beginner book collection is right now the best-selling book on Amazon. Number one. Well, let's take a look at Huck Finn. Hemingway said that all American fiction has its beginning in Huckleberry Finn. Twain went on tour in 1884 to promote the forthcoming publication of the book. He was 49 then. Just like rock bands go on tour to promote sales today, Twain did readings from Huck Finn to market and promote the book. He would introduce Huck Finn like this. He would say, "'Huckleberry Finn was a boy who lived a great many years ago in the Mississippi River Valley. He was uneducated, he was unwashed, and he was insufficiently fed, but he had as good a heart as any boy ever had. We, we liked him. We admired him. We enjoyed his society.' And since his society was denied to us by our parents, why, we naturally enjoyed it all the more. Well, in this book, Huckleberry tells his own story, all by himself. He says, You don't know about me without you read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. That book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth. Mainly. There was things which he stretched, but mainly he told the truth. That ain't nothing. I never know nobody but lied one time or another without it was the widow Douglas. The widow Douglas, she took me for a son and she'd allowed she would civilize me. And it was rough living up there in the house with her all the time, considering how dismal, regular, and decent the widow was in all her ways. And so when I couldn't stand it no longer, I let out. But Tom Sawyer, he hunted me up and said he was going to start a band of robbers and that I might join if I'd go back to the widow and be respectable. So I went back. The widow, she cried over me and she called me a poor lost lamb. And she called me a lot of other names too. But she never meant no harm by it. She put me up in them new clothes again and I couldn't do nothing but sweat and sweat and feel all cramped up. Well, the widow would ring the bell for supper, and you had to come on time, and when you got to the table, you couldn't go right to eating, but you had to wait for the widow to tuck down her head and grumble a little over the victuals, though there weren't anything really wrong with them. After supper, she got down the good book, and she learned me all about Moses and the bulrushers, and I was in a sweat to find out all about him, but, but by and by she let on that Moses had been dead a considerable long time. So then I didn't care no more about him because I don't take no stock in dead people. Pretty soon I wanted to smoke and ask the widow to let me, but she wouldn't. She said it was a mean practice and wasn't clean. I must try not to do it anymore. That is just the way with some people, though. They get down on a thing when they don't know nothing about it. Here she was a-bothering about Moses, which was no kin to her and no use to anybody being gone, you see, yet finding a power fault with me for doing a thing that had some good in it. And she took snuff, too. Of course, that was all right, because she done it herself. Her sister, Miss Watson, a tolerable, slim old maid with goggles on, had just come to live with her and took a set at me now and then with a spelling book. She worked me hard for about an hour, and then the widow made her ease up. I couldn't have stood it much longer. Then for an hour it was deadly dull, and I was fidgety, and Miss Watson would say, "'Don't put your feet up there, Huckleberry. Don't scrunch up like that, Huckleberry. Set up straight now.' "'and pretty soon she would say, "'Don't gap and stretch like that, Huckleberry. "'Why don't you try to behave?' "'Then she told me all about the bad place, "'and I said I wished I was there. "'She got mad then, but I didn't mean no harm. "'All I wanted was to go somewheres. "'All I wanted was a change. "'I weren't particular. "'She said it was wicked to say what I said, "'say she wouldn't say it for the whole world, "'said she was going to live so as to go to the good place. "'But I couldn't see no advantage in going there "'if she was going to be there.' So I made up my mind I wouldn't try for it. And now that she had a good start, she went on to tell me all about the good place. She said all the body would have to do there was to go around all day with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there and she said not by a considerable sight. Well, I was glad about that because I wanted me and Tom to be together. As we started out this series talking about Twain's focus on persona as his kind of secret strategy for achieving the effect that he was after, whether it be a humorous one or a dramatic one or one to influence the way people thought, he could have written a straightforward book about the evils of slavery and no one would have read it or been impacted by it. But instead he chose the innocent perspective of a 12-year-old boy. You know the old saying, drunks and children tell the truth. Well, Huck tells the truth. Sometimes he feels very guilty about the truth he's telling because he honestly believes that the truth he believes in is wrong and he's going to go to hell for it. His moral truth is tainted in his mind because the society around him has turned morality on its head, and he has lost all moral orientation, you might say, when in actuality he's the most moral person in the book. I had planned only to do a two-part series on Twain, but obviously we've gotten it stretched out, but uh, that's enough for today, class. (laughs) Next week, I will simply conclude with his famous 70th birthday speech. And, uh, and then we'll be done with our Mark Twain journey. If you would like to participate in the underwriting of this podcast, you can do it at patreon.com where you go there and just uh, and search for Beyond Texas and you can pledge whatever amount you think is reasonable to support our work here. Until next week, get out there and tell some stories of your own. No more powerful force in the world than good stories well told.